You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. You're with Selena Green on this Tuesday afternoon. In a moment, you'll hear about the how the warmer winters, changing rules around the use of agrochemicals and global travel are all posing big challenges for suppressing plant diseases. And the question is, should we be throwing more at finding solutions to food insecurity and climate change? Well, one renowned Australian grain breeder argues yes. Let's take the blinkers off our scientists, provide a really supportive environment for them to be safe, to go, what if we did this? Why aren't we thinking about nitrogen fixing wheat? I think that most scientists would never let that come out of their mouths because their colleagues would laugh at them. More on that to come. Don't forget my talkback number today is 1300 222 or the text line is 0467 922 Well, trying to keep across and keep ahead of plant disease is a big challenge for Australian agriculture. And as a result, there's a lot of vital work going on in that space of plant pathology. It's happening in paddocks, it's happening in laboratories, it's happening everything and everywhere in between. Well, for more than 50 years, the Australian Plant Pathology Society has brought together members who hail not just from across Australia, but also New Zealand, Oceania and Southeast Asia. And this week, they're all gathering in Adelaide for a biennial conference. Hear about some of the leading research happening across the globe. Well, Dr Andrew Gearing is the Society's president. I caught up with him earlier as he was about to step on stage to deliver his opening address and I asked him about the conference theme of change and adaptation. We're in a um, period of very rapid change. You know, of course, there's environmental change. Climate change is um, very much uh, upon us, which is presenting new new environments. For plant pathogens, we're getting a, a sort of a creepage of tropical pathogens and pathogen vectors moving in a north-south direction. Um, we're also not getting the, the really cold winters that we used to have, although I, I believe South Australia had a very cold winter <laughs> this year. But um, in other parts of the country, we're not getting the cold winters and um, therefore we're not getting the the traditional suppression of pathogens and insects that would normally occur over over winter, uh, just getting continuous populations running through. There's also sort of regulatory changes occurring. There's withdrawal of uh, agrochemicals from uh, agriculture. In, in Europe, they've got the uh, new Green Deal there and they have a target to reduce synthetic chemical use by uh, 50% by 2030. And uh, that's really going to have implications um, around the world. Um, Any imports uh, going into Europe will have to sort of demonstrate compliance there. So um, that's also a major change. And, of course, um, uh, with travel um, continuing and expanding, uh, we always have, um, you know, new pathogens and pests being introduced um, into the country. So uh, there's many challenges ahead and um, much adaptation that will need to occur in the next years. What role then does plant pathology and the work that, uh, the type of work that your members do in in trying to keep ahead of ahead of that and, and being part of that adaptation? Well, well the first, first role is to actually 
identify what what pathogens are causing disease. Plant pathology is a bit different from medicine in that we're dealing with uh, up to you know 500 different plant species that might be common in in agriculture, and uh, if you throw in sort of nurseries as well with uh, ornamental plants, then that number um, almost increases tenfold, and so. Um, our, our base level of knowledge of, uh, of all the different pathogens affecting the different plants is still sort of a long, long way from uh, complete. Um, so there's that role. Uh, we need to have predictive technologies. So to know, um, you know, when a, a pathogen will take off and cause a bad disease epidemic. Um, and that allows farmers to sort of take some prophylactic measures and to time sprays, etc. We need to have good surveillance capacity to be able to detect new pathogens as they arrive in the country and of course we need to have control mechanisms so control can be a variety of different methods plant disease resistance is still the main plank of plant disease control but it can also be simple measures like controlling vectors or controlling alternative hosts of the of the pathogen such as weeds or um, it can be maybe biological control sometimes. So it's a very multifaceted and multidisciplinary um, sort of approach to plant disease control. And so over this conference, uh, which uh, we started yesterday, but you've got a, a few busy packed days, I can see, of, um, of workshops and speakers. You've got international speakers. You'll be speaking shortly and, and hearing a lot about the work that's going on what both here within Australia and internationally uh, in quite a, a variety of fields by the looks of things. Yeah, we, we've got a good selection of speakers, you know, mainly from, from America. I, I guess uh, the Northern Hemisphere is where most of the action is just because they're sort of the major population centres. Um, so we've got some speakers from there. We've got an array of speakers from Southeast Asia and, of, of course, from uh, Australia and New Zealand. And we'll be uh, covering off on each of the major areas that I mentioned before. So some good good discussion and uh, hopefully new collaborations and uh, a bit of sharing of information. Dr Andrew Gearing there, President of the Australian Plant Pathology Society, is holding its conference in Adelaide this week. And hopefully we'll be able to bring you uh, some of those international speakers throughout the week to uh, hear, hear about some of the research going on globally in this field. It's just going on 12 minutes past 12. Well, the Millicent Sale Yards held its last sale back in June, but debate still continues about how many animals are going through the site. The Wall Range Council has kept the sale yards open for other uses, such as the truck wash and for transporting sheep and cattle between buyers. Now, the council estimated that up until October, there was less than 24 sheep and cattle transitioned through those sale yards. But one local cattle farmer, John Mullins, he didn't think those numbers looked right. He took it upon himself to work out what he says are the true numbers. Mr Mullins and his wife, Moira Nagel, who quit as a councillor this past week, have been advocates of keeping the sale yards open. And he's speaking here with news reporter Eugene Boisvert. It was implied at the October meeting that very few animals had gone through. So we decided to find out how many had. And through talking to the agents, when they kept their, they kept records themselves of what uh, uh, through vendor decks, through uh, count sales and so forth, that uh, what, what stock has been through the transfers through the sale yards. And we came up with a figure. At least 1,600 lambs and sheep and 134 cattle. 
An elders agent who spoke at the Wattle Range Council meeting on Tuesday mentioned a similar number to Mr Mullins. The agent who presented said that we've prepared to pay for the, the stock that went through in July and September. So I think that's the end of, end of any loss in the ball game. You've put up posters showing these figures that you've worked out with the agents compared with the council's figure. Um, what made you do that and you know, why are the agents supporting you in having those posters up in their windows? Well, they understand it as the correct figures. They understand the importance of transiting for all the reasons we've talked about. And I feel it needed to be, that the real state of the facts needed to be publicised throughout the, the area as much as we could. I wasn't going to put posters up all around the town, but these people are the ones that were involved in the, in the transiting stock. And um, I talked to them and they were happy but I just felt that it needs to, the real situation needed to be known as best we can. Can you just explain what the uh, importance is of having the transfer facility in Millicent um, in terms of you know reducing travel and the like livestock welfare? The aspect uh, of it is that there are many times when people have small numbers. It's not so much the numbers, but it's the amount of drop-offs that are made at the place. It might be one bull, five cows... And it's a matter of them then being added to a, a, a bigger truck to go to an abattoir or to another sale. And it saves the producer, uh, the, the transport operator, uh, money in not travelling around. Some people can't get into, particularly in winter, you can't get into some properties with particularly with a bigger truck. So it, it's the convenience of having, say, three or four small lots of, of land site and you can, you can load them there quite quickly and the, the truck moves on to, to fill up somewhere else perhaps or to go straight to an outdoor. And now that the uh, transfer numbers do seem to be being recorded, are you happy with the situation or is there anything you'd like to see change? Uh, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's what's been set up, the protocols are set up and I've just encouraged everybody to um, go, to do to do what they need to do to record the numbers. The council CEO, Ben Gower, told the meeting that the council would have missed out on $2,150 in revenue if indeed there were about 1,700 animals that transited through the sale yards between July and September. I actually have no idea how many have gone through because nobody's informed council um, of, of how the yards are being used. And I do acknowledge that the signs have only just gone up at the beginning of November advising all users that they must have a permit to use the yards and they are to to contact council, but we have no evidence to suggest um, that any number, either large or small, have gone through. What we have relied on is inspections of the yards, and we do know that the yards have not been washed down by our staff since um, the decision to close the yards on the 30th of June this year, Uh, and there is not a lot of evidence that large numbers of cattle or sheep have gone through those yards from a visual inspection point of view. So, We've got a, a bit of a disconnect between the claim that went up on the, the notice um, in some of the stock agents' windows versus what we're actually being uh, seeing on the ground or being advised um, by the users of the facility. And it's something we need to bottom out and, and get to the bottom of because the council is very interested to understand what the usage levels are like so that they can make informed decisions about future investment options in that infrastructure. Because you could tell the difference between 1,600 or more sheep and 24 going through the sow yards. 
when we inspected the sale yards uh, about a month ago and provided a report to the Chamber about that, there was um, minimal evidence of any um, cattle or sheep going through the yards. Of the uh, dozen or so concrete pens, um, there was no evidence whatsoever that any of those had been used. And in fact, there are cobwebs actually growing over the gate latches. We did another inspection yesterday and there does appear to be some usage but not to the volumes that are being suggested in that note. And now you've got these um, signs up explaining the procedure. Do you think from now on at least, whatever the situation was in the first four months since the sales ended, that you'll be getting accurate figures from now on? I would certainly hope so. The councillors have asked from the previous council meeting through to February next year for those um, numbers to be collated as accurately as possible. So they're not considering what happened between Um, July and September because there was no way of measuring the throughput there. What they are hopeful now that we've got these procedures in place is we will get a better indication of the numbers going through because we are strongly encouraging the users of the facility to let us know how many stock are going through to help the council make that decision sort of February onwards. As Ben Gower from Water Range Council speaking with news reporter Eugene Boisvert. 18 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, the renowned West Australian grain breeder thinks it's time more resources were thrown at finding solutions to food insecurity and climate change. Intergrain CEO Tress Wormsley says if we think big and take risks, who knows, we might even end up developing something like a nitrogen-fixing wheat. No, it's probably not realistic at this point in time, but for me, it's one of the really dream big, think big things that science should be doing. And so we can do conservative science and that is fantastic, but every now and again, we should be prepared to do something transformational and really step out of our comfort zone. A bit like what's happened with COVID. Yeah, so my analogy is when I look back at the learning that I got from COVID, and that is that when COVID broke out, everyone said, oh no, we have a massive problem because we can't invent a vaccine in less than three and a half years. But if you put the right amount of resources, the right supportive environment, create collaborative science and just tell the scientists that they have to do this, they did it. And they didn't just invent one, they invented like three or four in you know less than 12 months. And so for me, when we are thinking about how we step into solving climate change and some of the, you know, the big things that are challenging us in agriculture, we are going to have to be innovative with how we tackle that. Do you think with agricultural research we have been a little bit old-fashioned and caught up with our paradigms? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that if you actually say, well, we've been doing a pretty awesome job. So my example of that is in WA, you know, past 30 years, you can't doubt now that we're in a drying climate and we've got increased heat. And we, as an industry, have still been producing more and more higher volumes. So we are actually doing a really good job. But as that climate change challenge becomes more accelerated, doing more of just the same probably isn't going to be enough. So let's, I suppose, take the blinkers off our scientists, provide a really supportive environment for them to be safe, to go, what if we did this? When you're talking about support, you're really talking finance, are you? It's, it, no, it's not just finance. Finance is one of it. But I actually think that it is, it is providing a very supportive environment where 
people actually feel comfortable so that they can sit on a stage like I did today and propose why, don't, why aren't we thinking about nitrogen fixing wheat. I think that most scientists would never let that come out of their mouths because their colleagues would laugh at them. And so it's also about us as an industry not shooting people down when they come out with these weird and wacky ideas and going, hey, let's step back and have a little bit of a think about that. And sometimes it might be, we probably won't get to nitrogen fixing wheat, but we might get to uh, a wheat that is much more nutrient efficient. And so we might just get halfway, but that's still a fantastic outcome. That is Tess Wormsley there, CEO of Cereal Breeding Company Intergrain and Chair of the Grains Industry Association of Western Australia, speaking to Richard Hudson. Well, a new trial set to start in the southeast will attempt to use hoverflies to pollinate crops. It'll kick off in December. The trial outside of Mangambia will be fit out with custom fly boxes to house the pollinators with an Aracourt men's shed hard at work filling the order. Business Development Manager with South Pacific Seeds, Georgie Fitzgerald, commissioned the trial based on similar work done elsewhere in Australia. So South Pacific Seeds, we specialise in producing vegetable seeds across the southeast and we rely on uh, honeybees and uh, pollinators are a big part of producing our seed. So what we've asked the men's shed to do is build us some specialised boxes to trial with a new hoverfly that will uh, hopefully help pollinate our crops. We started the project about five years ago looking for um, other pollinators that can help with the honeybees to assist in our crops and we identified a hoverfly that could do that job for us. What is the plan for the boxes that the men's shed produce? Where will they be heading? Yeah, so we've got a crop around uh, Mount Gambier, a hybrid carrot seed crop identified that we'll be using these boxes in. Um, we'll be loading them up in sort of December with hoverfly larvae, putting them in the field and letting the hoverflies hatch and do their thing and hopefully go out and pollinate the plants for us. So yes, as you said, this has been an ongoing trial and similar things happening at Interstate as well. Is this one of the first times you know of that it's happening in the southeast? Um, yeah, for us it's definitely our first time to trial them in the southeast. We've had extensive trials in our crops in Tasmania for a few years, so pretty keen to give them a go around Mount Gambia. One of the benefits we see is them they work at um, slightly lower temperatures than honeybees, so we're hoping they might come out earlier in the morning and pollinate and then the bees will come in as the day warms up. So it's something to complement our honeybee pollination. And this is in response to potential impacts in coming from Varroa? Yeah, definitely. Like we've known that there's been a threat of varroa for many years, so we started this project, I said, five or six years ago, looking um, at pollinators that can assist in our crop alternative pollinators, and the Aristarlis hoverfly was identified as one of them. It's naturally occurring in our area anyway, but it loves to lay its eggs in effluent, so we're trying to breed them in captivity so we don't have to deal with the effluent side of it. And how will you know you've been successful? Uh, so we'll be monitoring the uh, numbers of hobby hoverflies in the crops throughout flowering periods, doing lots of counts and looking at the seed set and that. So uh, we won't know the results for some time yet, but it'll be interesting to see how they go in our environment. And if, if it is successful, could you imagine this being rolled out more widely across the region? Yeah, definitely for our crop. We'd be looking to upscale our breeding of these hoverflies and using it more extensively in some bigger fields in the future, especially as varroa comes in and impacts some of the native wild bee populations. And suitable for all types of crops? 
Yeah, we believe so. Um, we've done trials in our carrot seed crops, many of our brassica fields, and I believe in interstate they're using it in the berry industry as well. As the business development manager with South Pacific Seeds, Georgie Fitzgerald speaking with Elsie Adamo. It's 25 minutes past 12 here on The Country Hour. You're with Selena Green. Let's head to the Weather Bureau. Jenny Horvat, hello. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, Selena. What's the story weather-wise? Oh, look, it's still pretty similar to what it has been. We've got that ridge of high pressure to the to the south, maintaining that southeasterly milder airstream across southern parts. And there's been a little bit of patchy cloud around. Couldn't rule out the odd light shower out of that, but not expecting anything significant with that. And then we've got our trough of low pressure just sitting near the, the border up um, near um, Queensland and New South Wales. Sun to see a little bit of thunderstorm activity on the other side of the border, so we can expect to see some of that in the far northeast today and even maybe coming further along the, the border and potentially even pushing into the Flinders later today. Um, so could be a few storms around up in the, the northeast there today, um, but we will see some of that activity starting to move a little bit more inland as the week progresses. So it's going to make things a little bit more interesting, especially for some more central and southeastern parts of the state. So we'll start to see a bit more broad thunderstorm activity on the Wednesday, starting to push more broadly into the northeast pastoral district and the and the Flinders district. Slight chance could make it into the Riverland, but at this stage possibly just saying to the north. And then on Thursday we'll see that trough really starting to push back into SA. So starting to see more of that development um, more broadly pushing into the northwest pastoral district, Air Peninsula and central parts of the of the state as well on the Thursday, maybe making it down to the to the Murray lands as well. And then just in the northeast pastoral district and possibly the Flinders, we will be watching those storms on the Thursday there because they are potentially going to be severe. So we could be seeing some damaging wind gusts, some heavy rainfall at times that could lead to some localised flash flooding and we couldn't rule out some hail. So Thursday afternoon could be a little bit interesting for parts of the northeast pastoral district and the Flinders district, but still very much a, a watch this space. We'll see the continuation of that trough coming back into SA, maybe a low developing on the Friday, so maybe even tending to rain periods at time across some of our southeastern districts through there and some of the central districts and that severe thunderstorm risk pushing across to possibly even the Mount Lofty ranges and our southeastern districts on the Friday. But it's all very much a watch this space. Weather coming from the east is a little bit unusual for SA. We like to see our weather coming across from the, the west, so the guidance can be struggle a little bit with picking this one coming across. So it is going to be definitely a bit of a, a watch and to see how the trough comes through and how far actually it does come back into SA. But um, looks like things are starting to line up. So we'll have a better idea as um, the week progresses. But it's looking like a, a wet end to the, to the week for the eastern parts and southeastern parts of SA. Further west, not probably seeing too much, maybe just a, just a little bit of that coastal shower activity across our western coast. By Saturday, we'll start to see that low and trough moving back out of SA. So those showers and storms still possible along our eastern border districts, but really starting to retreat away. We'll have our new high pressure system coming through to the south. So maybe still some um, more onshore type shower activity as we head into the weekend and early next week. So just having a look at some of the cumulative rainfall figures that we are expecting until see until midnight Saturday. Generally less than a couple of millimetres about our western coast, increasing to two, two to five millimetres about the far north and across our central and eastern parts. We could be seeing 
falls of around 5 to 15 millimetres, but with localised falls of 15 to 30 millimetres possible. And with some of those thunderstorms, those totals could actually be pushing up around that 30 to 60 millimetres, Selena. So it could mm. be a little bit of a wet period coming up for parts um, at the end of the week. All right, watch this space. Thanks for that, Jenny. No worries, thank you. Jenny Horvat there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales, for tomorrow, uh, the upper and lower western districts are looking at a partly cloudy day with a medium chance of showers, most likely in the afternoon and evening, and there is a chance of a thunderstorm as well. Overnight temperatures down to around, well, somewhere between the mid-teens and low 20s, with daytime temperatures reaching the low 30s. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the South Australian Country Hour in the next half an hour. A 10-year plan going forward for the Riverland Wine District. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. Well, it's been some tough times for some in the Australian wine industry. You may have heard a bit about, or something of an ongoing glut of red wine in particular. While sales of Australian wine have steady, production has reduced. New figures from Wine Australia today We'll show you there is still an oversupply issue. In a moment, we're going to cross to the Riverland. It's a key wine growing area to hear about the plan for the industry going forward. And speaking of wine, how successful are we at getting South Australian wine and produce into New Zealand? New Zealand definitely has a significant space in terms of their white wine production. Uh, I think everybody will be familiar with New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And while obviously a key area for the Clare Valley in producing Riesling, a key strength of ours working in the New Zealand market is uh, red wine production. We've had some South Australian producers over in New Zealand uh, selling their wares and trying to get them further into that market, and you'll hear more about that very soon. Firstly, though, let's check in with Matt Coleman because he's got headlines for you. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the state government says an extra 230 social and affordable homes will be built to further ease housing supply pressures. The $135 million funding boost from the Commonwealth Social Housing Accelerator Program will see the homes built across regional and metropolitan areas by 2025. The state's consumer watchdog is warning the public to avoid an Adelaide-based solar panel company after numerous complaints from customers. The Consumer and Business Services says the allegations against SA Solar Energy are serious and range from failing to abide by mandatory cooling-off periods to making false representations that its products have financial benefit. And the River Torrens will today be receiving its annual clean-out to prevent algal blooms which can lead to its closure. The excavation of the channel at the Torrens outlet at Henley Beach will begin to allow flows from upstream storages to reach the sea. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, after countless conversations over many months, the wine industry in the Riverland today has a new path forward. 
Supported by South Australian government funding, peak industry body Riverland Wine has worked with other key wine organisations to come up with a 10-year industry blueprint to help the region recover from challenging economic and environmental conditions. Our reporter Eliza Bellage is at the launch at the Riverland Wine Centre, so let's head over to her now. Hello, Eliza. Give us an idea of what the atmosphere is like there. Hello, yes, Selena. I am here at Pike River at the Riverland Wine Centre and it is a marvellous day. The sun is out, the Murray River is glistening as is the Pike River just below me. Uh, it's a spectacular sight. You can see all the beautiful growth uh, from those floodplains, from those floods just over a year ago and um, beautiful trees um, brimming with birds that have been returning to the river and, of course, plenty of life um, and vibrancy here at this event as well. Winemakers, grape growers and industry uh, bigwigs are here from across the state for the launch of the Riverland Wine Industry Blueprint and there's a lot of excitement and I guess I'm hearing relief as well about the uh, launch of this document. But someone who has been far more involved with creating it than me is Riverland Chair Darren Oemke. Darren, how are you feeling now that this uh, document is being launched out into the world? I'm really pleased it's done. It's been Eight months of hard work, consultation, engagement. Uh, the consultants have done a fantastic job of getting out and about, and we've we've worked really hard with all layers and levels of the of the region and the state's industry to get to where we are now. So really pleased. Yeah, and eight months. It sounds like maybe not a long time to some people, but um, to my understanding that we've spoken about, there's been lots and lots of intensive roundtables with some very difficult discussions about the current situation of Riverland wine grape growers and industry bodies to try to look at a, a brighter future ahead. Yeah, well, there's nothing easy about the current situation uh, that the region's in. And certainly we've addressed that uh, in the priorities in under the blueprint. We couldn't have done the blueprint without staring in the face um, the short-term uh, crisis that the region's in and that the industry's having. But we've worked hard to look at how we deal with that in a very positive way and how we work through that uh, in, a, in a way that helps us to transition into the opportunities that present themselves in the long term as well. So, so we've been astride uh, the present and how can we address and work, to, uh, work with producers to get through um, the difficulties that the industry's uh, feeling at the moment and what does the future look like and how do we build to that. And so what are the key priorities uh, in this 10-year blueprint for the industry? Well, there's five key priorities, and I'm going to struggle to remember them all. But, but the first priority is all about the short term, which is transitioning to more sustainable production levels. The, um, then the priorities really start to look at uh, what the future looks like for the region. So we've, we've had a really strong focus on right here, right now, the changes that we're going through. Uh, we've looked at becoming an adaptable wine region, so there's been a really important component of what we've looked at is how does the region become more adaptable to trends? I, I actually use the word fashionable. How, how can we respond to trends and fashions and actually become a region that's known for being a quick adopter, quick change, responding to international trends in a, in a more effective way? One of the other priorities is about developing and promoting a regional identity a meaningful regional identity, I should say. And that's something we've been working on for a couple of years now. And the blueprint process has really emphasised the importance of that and the opportunity that's presented uh, from the point of view of uh, grape and wine sales, as well as from the point of view of 
uh, a sense of purpose in the region about what's happening in the industry. It won't surprise anybody that we've been. Another priority is about passionate leaders and skilled workforce. And uh, within the short-term problems we've got, you know, demographically, labour force problems are locked in for at least 10 years. So looking at labour force has been really important. And then the last priority is agile wine businesses that are sustainable and profitable. So, so opportunities for wine businesses to learn, grow, uh, become more capable um, and be one of the people that are participating in future opportunities. And just lastly, um, you know, it's a big process. I know people often get frustrated when there's more talk fests and more uh, documents and more conversations, but there's always a lot that gets brought to light. You know, from your just, uh, it might be hard to pull off the top of your head, but what did you, what was learnt that maybe wasn't known before? It is easy to get frustrated when you look at people talking um, when you're in the midst of a crisis. The, the, the problem is that I guess it's, not, it's, it's what we were looking at all the way, which is to align a whole lot of people. So, so in a sense, there's been a sense in the Riverland that, that perhaps people don't understand what we're going through here and it's more intense here. And through this process, we've been able to bring on the, the entirety of the wine industry from, other, other, from local bodies in the region through to state and national bodies. So, so the learning or the opportunity has really been about getting alignment and that, that's been really important and getting alignment with government and, and, and the process of not us sitting yelling at government about what's going on and what our problems are but to be sitting there learning and identifying and clarifying together uh, means that you know those other industry bodies government our board uh, people in the region get a sense of purpose and alignment so I guess in one of the things that it really exposed and that we've been learning over the last couple of years is how much everybody in the region is focused on the success and viability of selling wine from the region. And I'm really excited to see more and more how the region is embracing its wine product as, as part of what it, as part of the regional identity. And that's, I don't know if it's an outcome from this, but it's one of the things that's been rolling along at the same time and mixed in with the process. And hopefully a problem shared, a, a problem solved, or a problem shared, a problem with uh, many solutions. So thank you so much, Darren. Can, can I just, I, I really would like to acknowledge the South Australian Government uh, through the Minister for Primary Industry and Regions, Wine Australia, and the South Australian Wine Industry Council, who actually partnered with us in developing that. And that partnership in supporting and funding the process is one of those things that brings people together because we've got shared purpose. But thanks, Eliza. Yeah, lots, lots of um, fantastic people uh, working to solve those difficult problems. Thank you so much. That was Riverland Wine Chair Darren Oemke, and I'm here at Pike River for the launch of the Riverland Wine Industry Blueprint. We'll have plenty more on that for you tomorrow as well. Back to you, Selena. Thanks, Eliza. That was Eliza Berlage there. She's uh, reporting live at the launch of the Riverland Wine Industry Blueprint. It's happening as we speak, a document to help guide growers and makers through the next decade. And yeah, we'll hear more about that tomorrow. Uh, that blueprint was funded with $100,000 from the South Australian Government and $50,000 from Riverland Wine. And the South Australian Government has uh, just today announced that we'll also commit $200,000 over two years to support the industry to implement the recommendations out of that blueprint. It is 20 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill.
Hey, you with Selena Green on this Tuesday. It is World Fisheries Day today, and here's the question. How sustainable is your seafood? And does it matter to you that it is? Well, you might not know, you may know, that more than half of all wild-caught fish in Australia are certified to the Marine Stewardship Council Sustainable Fisheries Standard. The Marine Stewardship Council, MSC, it's an international not-for-profit organisation. It sets globally recognised standards for sustainable fishing and the seafood supply chain. We're using today to recognise sustainable fishing. The MSC has launched its inaugural report. It looks at two decades of progress in Australian fisheries back to the year 2000. Anne Gabriel is the MSC Program Director covering Australia, New Zealand and Singapore and she explains what they wanted to achieve from this report. And we're doing this specifically on World Fisheries Day because as we know it's a day where we emphasise the importance of sustainable fishing, you know, its impact on our ecosystems. But it's not just that, it's also really how vital it is for sustaining livelihoods. It's also important as a you know, source of food because our population is growing as we know around the world as it is in every other part of the world as well. So we're very excited to launch the 2023 Fishing for Future report. And it really underpins the MSC's fisheries standard that have been deployed in Australia for the past two and a half decades. So from the time our very first fishery in the world that was MSC certified, which is the Western Rock Lobster Fishery in Western Australia, this report actually has quantified the improvements and the benefits and the changes that we, we've seen in the water, which is why we're delighted to have that launched on this day. Is this just looking at species that have the, the certification from the Marine Stewardship Council or is it looking at all species that are caught here in Australia? So this report specifically um, assesses and analyses the outcomes of only the certified fisheries in Australia. But it's a really good reflection of the state of waters in Australia in general because um, in Australia, we have over half of our fisheries uh, by volume certified to the international MSC's fishery standards. Uh, we're talking about, in terms of number of fisheries, we're talking about 28 certified fisheries. But the diversity of the species for the seafood is also um, extremely remarkable. We're talking about 38 certified species um, in Australia. So it's quite a diverse range at the same time. Or what have you noticed as part of this report that has changed or improved since the, the year 2000? Yeah, so a lot of these fisheries, when they embark on the assessment program to be certified by the MSC, well, the MSC provides the, you know, the science-based benchmark for sustainable fishing. A lot of these fisheries, all these fisheries are audited by third-party assessment bodies. We call them the conformity assessment bodies. So it's very independent, it's credible, and MSC is impartial. We provide the international science-based standard, but the fisheries are then audited by third-party auditors. So when the fisheries go through the assessment process, which typically takes around 12 to 18 months, and in that time, if they're successfully certified, people think that's the end of their commitment to its sustainability. On the contrary, it's only the beginning of their journey towards sustainability and continuous improvement. The reason for that is our ocean is, you know, as we know, extremely uh, changing in its uh, diversity, its vibrance, but also due to the impact of external factors like warming water and climate change, etc. So every five years, these fisheries need to be reassessed again um, and then to be recertified. But in between that five years, every year they are being audited. So there's a lot of scrutiny, a lot of transparency, information disclosure that this, this fishery is expected 
to comply with once they are certified. And at the end of that, we see what the improvement says. So this report, which is a Fishing for the Future report, actually quantifies what's the difference we've seen in terms of stock health. That's one of the key principles in terms of sustainable fishing, is we look into a fisheries performance in terms of that particular species and how the stock health has improved over the time. The second principle that we look into is how these fisheries have improved in terms of their fishing operations and their interactions with the ecosystem. Now, that's a big word, but really typically that means is what have the fisheries done in terms of modifying their gears or their methods in terms of how they interact with um, endangered, threatened, protected species? So, for example, just to give you an idea, um, the first fishery in the entire world that was MSC certified was the Western Rock Lobster Fishery in WA. And in the last few decades, they've successfully maintained their certification, which is a exemplary uh, effort on their part, both in terms of the state government's effort as well as the fishing industry as well. One of the things they've done out of many innovations is, for example, they've modified their pots and their traps you know, in which they catch the lobster with what they call a sea lion exclusion device. So that sea lion exclusion device is just make sure, make sure that juvenile sea lions, for example, are not being trapped by those, those gear methods, but they're only catching lobster. I mean, that's one example. Another example is the Commonwealth Managed Fishery in the Eastern Tuna and Billfish Fishery in Queensland. They also, through the years since their certification in 2015, have implemented an electronic monitoring system. Now, what does this do? This helps them kind of look at how they're tracking and monitoring any kind of interactions with, you know, other endangered, threatened, protected species. In this instance, it's certain types of sharks and turtles. Um, and so we've got lots of examples like this that showcase in the report, which we hope brings to life not just the certification process, but the, really the meaningful changes that we're seeing being contributed by the industry on our Australian waters. And Gabrielle, when you talk about um, the, the bluefish tick, uh, the, the eco-label, when, can you explain what that is for the, those that might not know, but also where that sits when it comes to what fisheries are doing to improve their sustainability and what they are doing and continuing to do moving forward? The MSC bluefish tick is not just a, a, a nice-looking label that sits on the end of consumer products on the supermarket shelves. It is really an empowering choice for businesses who are wanting to source sustainable seafood. It's also an empowering choice for consumers. And we know that Australian consumers, through our own consumer research, is telling us every year that they're feeling really helpless um, and they really want to play their part to protect our oceans. So when they're going out there and shopping, whether it's a little canned tuna or whether it's, you know, um, Lots of the wet fish counters of corals or prawns, they want to make the right decision. So by choosing the blue fish stick, they're not just choosing sustainable seafood. They really are incentivizing many of the fisheries that you will see indicated in this Fishing for the Future report to continue to do the right thing. So while the fishing industry is coming forward and the government is coming forward to do the right thing, and get the fisheries certified to the MSC's fishery standard. It is imperative that businesses and consumers are also making the right choice at the end of the supply chain because this will just keep incentivizing them to do the right thing because it's all about continuous improvement as well. So it's really what we call the theory of change is this full circle where it's not just all about the fishing industry or the government's doing the right thing. It's about how the conservation community, NGOs, play their part as part of the assessment process, 
about how scientists and academia are engaged as well. It's how businesses are doing the right thing with their sourcing policies. And at the end of that loop, it's about how, you know, all these like you and I are doing the right thing, whether we're eating in a restaurant or shopping in a supermarket. So it's really a theory of change which has which closes the loop once we make that choice. Can you see a day where all fisheries in Australia have got this certification or this blue fish fish tick eco label? That will be the ideal world. Just like any other parts of the world, there there are complexities with the some of the smaller scale um, artisanal fisheries. Just just in terms of volume, just in terms of the complex environment. Already the fact that you know the MSC globally, we have a vision of thirty percent of wild caught global wild caught being MSC certified. The fact that in Australia we have superseded that thirty percent benchmark by having over fifty two percent as being MSC certified. It's a clear declaration of the positive momentum that we're seeing in Australia. Uh, we still have a, a lot more work to do. We're quite positively engaged. Like just this year, we've had some really good state-managed fisheries from New South Wales comes come on board for the first time. We've also had some um, state-managed fisheries from Queensland come come on board. And, you know, today on World Fisheries Day, as you know, we're also celebrating the Commonwealth managed fishery, the Great Australian Bite, which is one of the many federally managed fisheries that are MSC certified. So because of this historical commitment that we've seen in Australia, we're very positive about the future. But I also want to urge uh, businesses who are already having some really positive discuss and discussions with us to kind of um, ramp up their momentum, right? We want to see... Um, any organization that sells and also seafood come on board the sustainable bandwagon. You're talking about the airlines industry, the shipping industry, you know, fast food brands, health and supplements. I think with regards, with regards to market demand, we're really just a tip of the iceberg and there's so much more that we can do to continue to reward and incentivize some of the great work that fisheries are doing. As Anne Gabriel speaking there, the MSC Program Director covering Australia, New Zealand and Singapore, and she was speaking to Brooke Nindorf. This summer, have a safe one by learning your ABCs. A is for action plan. Having an action plan means you know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. B is for be safe. Be aware of the hazards you may face in the local area. C is for connect. Connect to abc.net.au slash emergency for the latest emergency information. During an emergency, listen to your local ABC radio station. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. Selena Green with you for the Country Hour today. Well, we know that China has long been a big market for South Australian produce. Uh, we've got a trade delegation in India from South Australia as we speak, trying to grow that market as well. But is that New Zealand is also increasingly loving what we make and grow here in South Australia. And some South Australian producers, including a couple from the Clare Valley, have been in Auckland to showcase their food and wine. This government-supported initiative was established to connect producers with key importers, distributors and buyers from major hospitality groups and retailers. Well, National Sales Manager at Claymore Wines, Nicholas Goss, says the company company already had a strong trading relationship with New Zealand, but this trip has expanded that. So this was a so Tasting South Australia 2023 was a, a government of uh, South Australia initiative. They're bringing together, I suppose, key food and beverage producers, uh, particularly wine focused, uh, into the New Zealand market. Those who have sort of had a, a established uh, relationships or developing new ones for the first time as well too. So a trip in terms of showcasing the best of SA produce. 
uh, was the key aim of, of the trade delegation. Um, so 10 wine and beer producers and then three food producers there as well too. So that was the key aim of further promoting South Australian, South Australian produce to our partners in New Zealand. And prior to this, what was Claymore's uh, business relationship with New Zealand, if there was any at all? Yeah, so we've, we've had quite a strong uh, trading relationship probably over the last eight years now in, in New Zealand, which has worked particularly well for Claymore. They're probably one of our key uh, export partners being our colleagues across the sea. But uh, for us, we were predominantly South Island based with our distributor and distribution relationship based predominantly in Christchurch. So for us, this was a, a key opportunity to further expand our positioning into the North Island with the majority of the um, three-day showcase uh, being based in Auckland. So key point for us of, of growth with a, with a key trading partner and uh, distributor in New Zealand. And was there any particular produce you bought or tried to sell and educate people about in New Zealand? Yeah, uh, look, I suppose when we look at from a wine perspective, New Zealand definitely has a significant space in terms of their white wine production. Uh, I think everybody would be familiar with uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And while obviously a key area for the Clare Valley in producing Riesling, a key strength of ours working in the New Zealand market is uh, red wine production as well too. So key focus points for us was further exploring with new trading partners, whether it be retailers or, or on-premise particular customers, was the showcase of our reds from the Clare Valley. So our uh, beautiful Shiraz Cabernet and the blends we have as well too. So we had a particular focus on those, uh, given that we've had an uh, established relationship with our distributor where they've been exceptionally successful in the South Island too. So that was the key key focus point for Claymore Wines is further showcasing those beautiful reds, which is a nice complement to the New Zealand uh, white wine uh, that they grow and uh, very good patronage in terms of New Zealanders uh, towards wine enjoyment. And do you think this trip did result in further connections and do you think this will increase your dealings with New Zealand businesses? Absolutely. It was a very, very well-organised showcase of South Australian and for us South Australian wine particularly. And yes, we were able to meet uh, some very key uh, retailers that are based, uh, based there, New Zealand operations out of Auckland, as well as major on-premise accounts uh, with the likes of major hotel uh, chains and those sorts of things. So a very successful uh, showcase and trade mission for Claymore Wines in terms of further expanding our, our position in, uh, in New Zealand. So, yeah, huge credit to the Department of Trade and Investment and South Australian Government for supporting, supporting us to, um, to showcase our key uh, part of production. National Sales Manager at Claymore Wines, Nicholas Goss. Owner and Managing Director of Paulette Wines in the Clare Valley, Ali Paulette, also travelled to New Zealand as part of the group. She says she was keen to showcase the company's Riesling, as there are misperceptions that it's quite sweet, which is not the style Paulette Wines makes. We hang our hat on Riesling, so I'm always an advocate pushing Riesling. So New Zealanders really have a, a perception of Riesling being quite sweet, which is not um, the style that we make the most of we do have a sweet one but our dry style Riesling so going over there and really um, doing a bit of an education piece um, with our existing customers um, and some potential new customers on on our offerings so we have a, a sparkling Riesling and a still Riesling our Polish Hill Riesling which is just a beautiful minerally delicious 
Riesling. So that's the one that we mainly were trying to push over in that market. And what were the main connections you made over there? Did this surprise you? Was there anyone you spoke to that you wouldn't thought of trading with prior to this trip? One of the surprising connections that we had was with some of the bigger hotel groups over there and the tendering process. So getting to meet the sommeliers and the, the buying group was a really good idea of how they operate, when they tender, what they're looking for. Um, and then being able to introduce our existing distributor to these people so that he can be a bit more competitive in that space. Um, and that's not something that I went over there thinking I would make that connection. So that was a really fantastic bonus that we were really grateful for. And over the three days, what kind of events took place? What did your, your day look like? It was a really good meal in that we actually got taken out into trade. So we went and saw some supermarkets and how um, they set up selling alcohol, a little bit different to how we operate here in South Australia, going to get your milk in one aisle and your wine in another. I think we should all have wine in the aisles. So it was really good to see how that worked and actually just standing back and watching customers in the shop and how they actually entered the space and navigated and what they looked for was uh, quite an insight and quite interesting. And then also going into bottle shops um, and then realising who the big players are in that space um, and how they're dictated to by bigger company groups and buying groups. So that was a really great insight. So I really enjoyed that um, and then we had some fabulous guest speakers also came and spoke to us some quite big importers um, and distribution companies within New Zealand already came and spoke to us about the state of play at the moment and I guess successes and things and challenges which were, were great to hear from on the ground and then also big uh, like food distribution companies as well because we had food and wine going over there so and then we had a fantastic day where we presented all of our wines to potential uh, buyers distributors um, and some consumers um, with a fantastic lunch that was showcased Um, the DTI team put a fantastic job on putting on this lunch showcasing a fabulous New Zealand chef and a Mark Olive um, Australian chef pairing both New Zealand produce and Australian produce together with a South Australian wines and beer so that was a great day um, and a great networking day to be able to chat with everybody that was there so yeah it was really really beneficial does sound like it was a lot of fun that's the owner and managing director of Paulette Wines at Clare Valley Ali Paulette and she was speaking there to Annabelle Francis well Jason Chong is bringing you afternoons this afternoon hello Jason hello how are you, <laughs> you going? doing good what good. have you got for us today on today's show we're going to talk about how you actually become an organ donor there's a big push at the moment mm. uh, so we're going to follow up what are the actual steps you got to take uh, also we're going to be talking about hangover cures oh. um, do you have a favorite uh, well yes uh, isn't hair of the dog <laughs> That's, there you go. Uh, that's one of them, isn't it? <laughs> I think we've just found out something about you. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so that, a lot of other stuff coming up too, but uh, you'll have to listen to find out. Fantastic. Have a great show. <laughs> Jason Chog there. He'll be with you for afternoons. And uh, yes, I stick around those stories and more. I'm very sure he'll be keen to hear if you've got a better suggestion than mine for hangover cures. Uh, it is coming up to the one o'clock news. Don't forget that you can listen back to the Country Hour if uh, you hop on the ABC Listen app. It's a free app. You can download Download it onto your smartphone and tablet right now and you can keep across lots of great rural stories from across the ABC at abc.net.au forward slash rural. It's one o'clock, news time. The ABC Listen app lets you take ABC Radio with you wherever you go. At home, in the gym, up a ladder, on the road, interstate, out of space. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.